This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Today I'm joined by two guests, Drs. Gerardo Marty and Mark Mulder. Professor Marty is Chair of Sociology at Davidson College in Davidson, North Carolina. He earned his Bachelor of Arts at Pepperdine University and then his Ph.D. from the University of Southern California. He has authored or co-authored eight books focusing especially on contemporary religious issues. Professor Mulder earned his Ph.D. from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and is the chair of the sociology department at Calvin University, where he also teaches in their urban studies and ministry studies departments. In addition to his teaching, Professor Mulder has published numerous scholarly articles and books that also focus on social change and contemporary American religion. Professors Marty and Mulder have co-authored a new book, The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler, The Crystal Cathedral, and the Strain of Megachurch Ministry, which is the topic of our conversation today. Professors, welcome to Thinking in Public. You know, one of the most interesting questions, even as we get started here for me, is how the two of you came to collaborate on this book. That's not an instantaneous decision. Something has to explain how this came together in your minds and then eventually in the book entitled The Glass Church. How did that happen? Well, Gerardo and I um, have been collaborators on a number of projects for a long time. And uh, what brought us together uh, probably more intimately was another project called the uh, Latino Protestants uh, Congregations Project, um, which is Lily funded. And um, we are co-direct, we continue to be co-directors of that. And while we were working on that, Gerardo actually pitched this idea. So I'm going to let him kind of explain how he came to it and then how we decided to go forward with it. I grew up in Schuler's Orange County and literally watched the Crystal Cathedral as it was being built. And having some acquaintance with all of the dramas that have been associated with that ministry, I was very well aware when the bankruptcy was declared and found it to be just as shocking as most other people. Once that started to come together, I felt like this was a story that needed to be told. This remarkable ministry that had started in a drive-in theater had grown tremendously, had become a model for uh, what it meant to be a pastor in the contemporary world, and then to see uh, this empire crumble. Uh, It had a nice bookend, if you will, and that always attracts attentions uh, to people like me who would like to provide a more detailed, nuanced, and yet full understanding of what actually happened here in this ministry. And what actually happened here is, just as you described in short, uh, the birth of what became one of the most famous ministries in the world, based upon uh, a certain kind of celebrity and uh, aspiration of success, what was at least claimed in many terms to be a demonstration of success that ended spectacularly in a bankruptcy. And then of all the historical ironies, what was called the Crystal Cathedral at the heart of a televangelism or a tele-religion phenomenon that uh, is, even as we speak now, the Cathedral of the Diocese of Orange of the Roman Catholic Church, which, as you note in the books, the first time a non-Catholic building has ever been translated into a Roman Catholic cathedral in Catholic history. You can't make this up. No fiction writer could make up Robert Schuller. And uh, I, I say that as one who, who uh, knew him and uh, had uh, various encounters with him, uh, including uh, the personal tour he took me on of the uh, grounds of the Crystal Cathedral. And uh, there's a long story behind that. But, uh, and and uh, Robert Schuller and I uh, were antagonists theologically uh, in the Reformed world. Uh, but he was irrepressible. And so the amazing thing is, is that one time when we had a very bad encounter, uh, he actually said, the next time you're in Southern California, let me show you around the Crystal Cathedral. Well, as a student of American religion, I couldn't turn that down. And uh, so anyway, it was just fascinating. But I'll, I'll tell you, I had no particular insight, as insightful as I would like to think myself to be, that what I was seeing then would end in a matter of a decade in uh, a spectacular bankruptcy. So it is one of those stories that demands to be told, but uh, you've done a uniquely um, academic work here, and it's published by an academic publisher, Rutgers University Press, 
And in order to get this kind of book published by an academic publisher, you not only have to write it in uh, in such a way that it uh, impresses academic uh, reviewers, um, and you do write as scholars, but it also has to be something that is understood to be of significance to uh, a publisher like Rutgers University Press um, beyond your personal interests. And the reality is you are talking about what is a very important cultural occurrence uh, in the history of Christianity in the United States. Mark, you are a you come from a uh, a, a Dutch Reform background. Um, this is just not the kind of story you would predict coming out of, of that theological tradition in the United States. Not at all. And, you know, it wasn't until I was an adult that I even realized that Schuller was Dutch Reformed. Um, you know, back in, when he, in Northwest Iowa, he should actually, his name is pronounced Scholar. He actually changed pronunciation as he, as he moved west to make it a little softer. And so um, when Gerardo pitched this idea, um, I was a bit, uh, I don't know. And so I, I hemmed and hawed a little bit. But then I realized he and I come from very uh, similar cultural milieus, uh, Dutch Reformed. He was in Iowa. And I, we actually grew up in, I grew up in Alta, Wisconsin, and he grew up in Alta, Iowa, both named after the same Dutch town. Um, and yeah, the reason why I think I never saw him as someone coming out of the same tradition until I was adult, because um, the Crystal Cathedral was somewhat antithetical to my Dutch Reformed experience growing up. I, I very small, plain, unordained, modest church. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, none of the vestments that he wore um, and none of the theatrics. And so a lot of what he does in terms of worship style um, I, it, I didn't recognize, but then theologically, of course, uh, possibility thinking, theology of self-esteem, um, never made the connection to reform theology or, or Calvinism as I understood it. And there's the additional irony is that Schuler comes from a very unexpected place for what he ended up doing, both theologically and in terms of the building of an actual church one of the earliest megachurches in America. And so the reason why I felt that Mark was important to be able to do this is that Mark has sensibilities, uh, living in Michigan, coming from Iowa, uh, living in Wisconsin, you know, that, that area of being able to understand what is this sentiment that would somehow be able to transition into a Southern California that I understood much better. Uh, one that's characterized by mobility, by an ambition, by entrepreneurial impetus, by uh, the uh, ability to uh, purchase property and and uh, utilize it uh, in an expansive way of cars, automobiles, you know, uh, the celebrity and the ability to be uh, telegenic. Uh, all of those things were all very familiar to me. Uh, so being able to combine forces to be able to work all angles of this story is, I think, what makes it uh, such a powerful analysis. Well, it is a powerful analysis. And as much as I thought I knew so much about Schuler uh, and the ministry, I, I learned a great deal by reading your book. And uh, just as a matter of personal biography, I grew up uh, as a Southern Baptist, no surprise there. Uh, but I was also tremendously influenced by uh, something of a, an, uh, an analogy to the Crystal Cathedral in its uh, vision, but not in its theology. And that would be Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, where uh, D. James Kennedy was pastor. And, uh, and, and yet, if, if you were to just take a television shot, there would be a lot of similarities between Robert Schuller in his uh, academic gown, which, as you say, was very carefully orchestrated, even right down to the particular tone, because he wanted it to look right on television. And uh, D. James Kennedy in the pulpit of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, which was also incredibly, is incredibly theatrical space, uh, also dressed in his doctoral gown. The, the difference was that uh, Jim Kennedy actually had an earned doctorate from New York University. But uh, they both uh, seem to understand something of this theatricality, and uh, they, they, they both began their services with a very similar invocation of a biblical verse said in that, uh, you know, Syntonian voice. And, uh, and yet, uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church was and is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America and under the control of the presbytery there. 
and uh, is far more organically Presbyterian than the Crystal Cathedral, as its very name implies, ever was, with what is America's longest continuing uh, religious denomination, which is now the Reformed Church in America. Uh, I thought I knew uh, a great deal, and frankly, I did. Uh, I encountered Robert Schuller first in 1983, and it was right uh, soon after his book, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, had come out. And I found the book absolutely appalling, theologically. I just, I, I, I found it very difficult to believe that anyone identified with the Reformed Church in America would write such a book. And I knew he was RCA because he invoked that the very first time I heard him in person, but he had no idea to whom he was speaking. He was invited to speak. It was a very odd thing in 1983 in the midst of uh, all kinds of national and denominational controversy. He was invited by... Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's Christian Life Commission, which uh, was at the time kind of the left wing of the SBC. And he was invited to speak in the same session as Jim Wallace. I don't know if you know that name, who's the head of the Sojourners movement. Okay. So just imagine the two of them. Schuler does not know who Jim Wallace is. Jim Wallace does know who Robert Schuler is. And Schuler had no idea who his audience was. And he got up and just actually tore pages right before us. He tore pages out of Self-Esteem and New Reformation and proceeded to correct the uh, Reformation-based theology of the people to whom he was speaking. And uh, it did not go over well. I don't even know if he did if he knew it didn't go over well. But uh, anyway, I, I read the book, and it just seemed to me to be Pelagianism uh, mixed with New Thought. And uh, it was odd at the time uh, I was studying uh, New Thought as a uh, as a theological interest, is trying to understand religion in America, and I realized, you know, this is just Norman Vincent Peale. Now, at the time, I didn't realize it was organically Norman Vincent Peale, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it was. So, uh, you know, uh, Gerardo, tell tell us something of how you get that New Thought Norman Vincent Peale, uh, Robert Schuller trajectory. Well, what's interesting is even though people see Schuler as a celebrity, he really viewed himself as a pastor. And when he graduated from seminary and took on his first pastorate outside of Chicago, his concern was how best to pastor and grow this church. And at that point, doctrine was not the most important thing in his mind. He became very practical about what it meant to really speak to people, to motivate them, to encourage them, to have them be givers as well as volunteers? And how do you go about doing the work of the gospel in a contemporary world? And he began listening to the preachers who seemed to have the most attention, the ones who seemed to have the most, um, well, vitality in their preaching. And that's where Norman Vincent Peale came in. Norman Vincent Peale was by far one of the most famous preachers of the day who had an astounding audience well past the doors of his church. And it was the message that appealed there that seemed to cross doctrinal lines and cross sort of religious sensibilities to be able to touch the the ordinary person. And that's where I think that in those few years in which he was very successful as a pastor, that he began to craft a whole new persona of what it meant to really speak to people, um, and not just to the ones who were right in front of him, and not just the ones who were already mm, sort of shaped within the denomination, but to really be able to speak into sort of the hearts of people. So when he started his mission church in Southern California, he immediately appealed to that same sensibility, uh, developed and expanded it, and built a mentoring um, sort of sponsoring relationship with Norman Vincent Peale himself so that Norman Vincent Peale became a lifelong example and a lifelong partner in the ministry that he cultivated. There's some real theological parallels there, and they're not the same. Norman Vincent Peale uh, was uh, a Methodist uh, mm-hmm. who, uh, in order to take the pulpit of the Marble Collegiate Church, accepted ordination in the Reformed Church in America— but at the same time, and I don't, I don't understand this on the part of the RCA. Some RCA um, official is going to have to explain this to me, given the times. I mean, you're talking about the 1930s. How in the world was it that someone like Norman Vincent Peale, who confessionally, basically openly rejected 
the confessional tradition of the RCA. He nonetheless is ordained in the RCA and becomes the, uh, the pastor of the Marble Collegiate Church. And, uh, of course, eventually becomes the pastor to the family of, of Trump, uh, the Trump mm-hmm. family in uh, New York, and is the one pastor cited by Donald Trump as the most influential in his life. It's just, you, again, you can't make this up. Mm-hmm. Well, that to me is the bridge. The bridge is that you have a, an expansion of business and an expansion of people who are moving up the ladder as white collar workers in a newly um, built sort of um, ladder of of uh, of promotion. You know, how do I become um, stable financially, and what does it mean to actually accomplish something in this world? And um, how do I find meaning in life? And for many people, that was through business. And I think that once uh, this orientation of how do you then appeal to that business person uh, who is pursuing profit and who is a very ego-oriented person, putting themselves out into the world in a competitive manner, how do you appeal to that person to still embrace um, the tenets of Christianity? And that's what began uh, a longer work, a longer project of which Peel was a part of, to say, okay, we need to now accommodate this message to be able to say, yes, you can be a Christian and you can be a capitalist. And to be able to work those things together so that the messages began to be more practical and spoke directly to the anxieties of this new class of person. So I think that Marble Collegiate Church was well-placed to speak exactly to that kind of person. And lo and behold, when Orange County was populated with Southerners and Midwesterners all moving out into an expanding suburban landscape, uh, working in a variety of fields, not only aerospace, but a number of other businesses and, and opportunity that was opening up, that Schuler ended up speaking to the very same kind of person. And that that yeah. meeting of the anxiety of the white collar worker anxious to provide for his family as well as attain a measure of success um, became sort of the target audience, if you will, of Schuler and his messages. There certainly was an incredible uh, commercial uh, financial aspirationalism, uh, managerial perhaps aspirationalism in all of this. And uh, I can draw, as a, a church historian and theologian, I, ca- I can draw a line from people like Henry Ward Beecher at Plymouth Congregational Church, also in uh, Greater New York, and then Harry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, and, uh, and Fosdick and Peel were at, uh, at one time uh, contemporaries there in, uh, in New York with Fosdick at the Riverside Church, kind of the paragon of American theological liberalism. But also, uh, two different things with Fosdick. One was, he understood public relations, and early in the 20th century, he began to uh, partner in a way that was considered uh, coloring way outside the lines with uh, one of the early public relations experts uh, in America, Ivy Lee, uh, and then also uh, Bernays, the, uh, the nephew, actually, of Sigmund Freud. Uh, but Freud takes me to the fact that Fosdick also translated uh, he abandoned Orthodox Christian doctrine, often actually repudiated it, but he uh, he, he abandoned it in favor of uh, kind of psychotherapeutic categories. And uh, and then along comes Peel. And, and by the way, uh, you know, the, the best uh, evidence from Peel is that he, every time, in fact, uh, Carol V.R. George, who wrote the, mm-hmm. uh, the best biography uh, of Norman Vincent Peel, points out the fact that every time there was, a, say, a fundamentalist modernist controversy, he sided with the modernists. But he did not have that abrasiveness of—so he never, he never outright denied orthodox doctrines the way that Fosdick did. So my grandmother, my Southern Baptist grandmother, had uh, not only Guidepost magazine, but other, you know, Norman Vincent Peale books. And it, it was all, seems to me, a part of the same commercial milieu and uh, the cultural moment with Dale Carnegie and uh, the Rotary Club. You know, just about—it's this aspirational, white-collar— uh, looking for stability, and the Cold War has to be a part of the background of this as well. And Orange County, as you point out in your book, you know, uh, overrepresented in the defense industries. Uh, This burgeoning new uh, America shows up in places like Orange County before anywhere else, and eventually you get Disney and Knott's Berry Farm and uh, the the just explosion of everything. But you make a fascinating point, which uh, I have not seen made uh, before in your book, 
Uh, you guys argue that Schuler wasn't so much an evangelist in the classic Christian sense as he was uh, attractive to people who thought themselves Christian but just weren't members of any particular church. They moved from Iowa, Virginia, Ohio, Indiana. They they ended up in Orange County. Uh, they weren't exactly non-Christians. They just weren't engaged yet in any church. And so two things here. The, he, he really was spectacularly successful in harnessing thousands of them, but he also uh, decided the name of his church was going to be a community church, so he downplayed any kind of denominational uh, identification. So how does that all play into this? Let me ask uh, Mark. How does, how does all of this play into that? Yeah, that was a really conscious decision at the time to not be Garden Grove Reformed Church. And, and, and for sure, it was because Reformed, it had no uh, marketing ability. Um, it can only uh, stand to put people off. And I think if you actually look at some of the records, he was a little bit uh, embarrassed by some of his Dutch Reformed compatriots who are already there in Southern California. Um, because uh, as we dis- discussed in the book, he had a lot of trouble finding a spot to actually hold worship. And so, you know, um, the lore of the drive-in movie theater where he ended up in 1955, was actually the ninth out of 10 possibilities. And the local classes of, of Reformed churches has suggested a farmer who could uh, be the architect for Schuler's new church because uh, he had built barns. <laughs> and so uh, Schuler was aghast at that. And, um, and uh, so he thought, no, I'm just going to be Garden Grove Community Church. I'm going to try to really lower any obstacle to coming to church that people can, can possibly offer. And I'm going to, to make church as accessible as possible. Um, and, you know, he eventually, uh, you know, came to consider himself a bit of a pre-evangelist that um, he was doing everything he could to get people in the door. And so he felt like there, there are aspects actually of reformed theology that he found embarrassing. And that he said, you can't preach about it. You can, you can talk about predestination, but you have to do it in a classroom setting where people can ask questions and you can have a dialogue. You can't sit on a pulpit and just tell people about it because it's going to come off as strange and, and profoundly unattractive that people don't have agency. And so he always avoided that component of his Reformed identity. When it came to issues of accountability and uh, orthodoxy, then he would really like to lean into his Reformed Church of America identity but only when it worked for him. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book, you document how he used it when he wanted uh, respectability and supposed evidence of accountability, which he repeated many different points over and over again at length. I think that's why he mentioned it at that uh, event I first attended in 1983, which was a Southern Baptist event in which he was a speaker. But that also reminds me of the fact that uh, he wasn't unique in that. So, for instance, about the same time as Schuler is uh, building the Crystal Cathedral at its height, Oral Roberts from an extremely different tradition, Pentecostal charismatic tradition in Oklahoma, he actually seeks and receives United Methodist credentials at one point as kind of a way of saying, I'm not like those uh, other people who are just, you know, unaffiliated and unaccountable. That, that didn't last all that long in terms of his active identification, but it is interesting. You know, you have this, maybe there's a story to be told here of the credentializing uh, uh, issues of the 20th century, where both Schuler would cite it, and uh, even people like Oral Roberts sought it and, and actually achieved it at one point, uh, because it was convenient at the time to say, I'm not just a independent, I'm a RCA pastor, or I'm a United Methodist pastor. By the way, uh, you also make very clear that Schuler uh, often claimed, A, to, uh, to have produced the ministry as part of a strategic plan, and you point out and by the way, we mean to take nothing away from the entrepreneurial ability of Robert Schuler. I, I just want to say that right up front. I take nothing away from his entrepreneurial ability in those early years. But uh, as you indicate, this, this really wasn't a strategy. For instance, being located on the, the interstates there, the, the freeways, the freeways weren't there, and no one knew they were going to be there when he uh, started the property, but it did end up that way. The other thing is he wasn't a B, you might say, as innovative as he often gets credit for. And uh, in the book, you, you, you don't uh, take this out very far, but you mentioned J. Wallace Hamilton in St. Petersburg, who, uh, who did two things. Number one, long before Schuler had a drive-in church, uh, which, by the way, again, irony, is actually a United Methodist church, 
And, uh, but it's also called Pasadena Community Church. I, I was born about 30 miles away from there, so I, I knew of it, and, but I hadn't made that connection. But even naming this drive-in church, a community church, was, uh, was, it was something he knew of already. But given Schuler, uh, it all became a part of Schulerism. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and, and he would also, I think one of the key things that we found out is he would read back stories or, or um, uh, explanations for things that didn't necessarily exist at the beginning. So building your church near a highway intersection became one of the tenets of, uh, you know, he, he would publish books and he had the Leadership Institute, you know, you want to you buy near or uh, build near highway interchanges. Um, and so, uh, and he would talk about how the drive-in theater, uh, that became, he understood that later on is, oh, it's all about accessibility. We want it to be there for people who are wheelchair bound, people who are in uniform, people who have, um, you know, uh, are concerned about crowds and things like that. But that was read back onto drive-in church. That wasn't necessarily uh, why he initially uh, founded the drive-in church. It was uh, out of necessity, a lack of options. Yeah, I'd say one of the things I want to add is Schuler stumbled on a strategy to unite strangers at church. Churches, for as long as we've known them, are connected because friends and family and neighbors invite each other to church. And between getting a message out about um, a service that's accessible and allowing people who did not know each other to occupy the same same place was remarkable. And he was able to then, in thinking about that, be able to figure out how can I accentuate this principle in every way possible, um, in my messages, as well as in the space that I have, as well as in the broadcast that I eventually uh, take on. And I think this is part of what makes um, the modern church so distinctive, is that the modern church, even though it was called a community church by him, is really about how can we get more strangers in the building in order to give it a shot? And how can we then convince those who are already here to dedicate their time and their tithe to be able to build the infrastructure to hold more strangers? And the ability to do that is, I think, what then backed into what became his key organizational strategy. And that is, I can ask for as much money as I can, but ultimately I'm going to have to borrow as much money as I can. And as I borrow, then I'll be able to fill in the gaps of revenue um, by being able to get a few donors and carry out those payments for as long as possible. So the uh, assumption of debt on the part of the church became a strategic way of being able to build capacity for people who had not yet arrived. And that's kind of like a Ponzi scheme. It works until it doesn't. And uh, the Crystal Cathedral, it worked until it didn't. And uh, by the time you had declining attendance, uh, an aging Schuler, a changing Orange County, and uh, any number of issues, including a uh, an increasingly uh, non-maintained facility at the entire Crystal Cathedral, Eventually, the debt became a trap. And by the way, you had the, the recession of 2009 and, and what came afterwards. So uh, all, all of a sudden, everything that had worked for Schuler organizationally begins to work against him. So is, is one of the lessons here that he didn't see it and, until it was, it was way too late? Well, in my mind, as I've read the memos and understand his approach, he saw himself as incredibly strategic and highly rational. And he and everyone else around him agreed that however he was achieving his success, it was because he was strategic. You know, he, he pursued a strategic calculation to expand and create um, a stability for a church before secularism would come in and enforce its decline. Um, but what I think what he did not know is that he was unaware of how policies uh, uh, towards financial institutions had changed in the late 70s in order to combat stagflation. And so you had 
a lowering of, of uh, restrictions on the flow of capital. You had a massive rise in the ability uh, to be able to obtain these kinds of loans. And you also had um, windfalls on the part of wealthy Christian businessmen who now had more money to give to causes that they themselves had some resonance to. And so the ability to access credit as well as access wealthy Christian um, businessmen, executives, uh, together uh, became a part of the success that I don't think he always talked about. And they didn't always make it into the principles that he shared. And so when credit contracted and when those that wealth was no longer as accessible and the flow of capital dried up, that's what really put everything in arrears. I think, I think also he, he, he assumed that he was, what he was doing was universal and that uh, it could be implemented anywhere in the United States, that they, he didn't realize uh, the confluence of events that made his church in Orange County, in, in Garden Grove, perfect for that moment, for the, for the back half of the 20th century, the tilting of the country toward Southern California, bringing um, these white middle-class families who were eager for, for some semblance of uh, a religious organization that looked like something from home, but still had a fresh spin on it that felt West Coast and a bit different. And he thought that this could be done anywhere. He suggested drive-in uh, churches around the country, build, build a dome, you know, at the intersection of 94 and 80 in, in Chicago. And don't worry about the weather. We can still do it there. And so I don't think there was a quite uh, uh, a clear understanding of the, what a lot, the demographics that allowed him to flourish for so long. And then, as we know, as, as Orange County became uh, more racially diverse, um, large Vietnamese populations, large Latinx populations. The ground was shifting beneath them, and he did he did see it. I mean, they started a Hispanic ministry, but it, it was a bit of a, a, an attachment. It was not fully integrated, um, and so they weren't really resourced to, to respond or adapt to the changing demographics of Orange County. So when you look at a book with the title, The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler, The Crystal Cathedral, and the Strain of Megachurch Ministry, I have the impression that there would be many people who might know a little bit about some of this, but very little about all of this, or especially when you put all the words together. What in the world was a glass church? Well, you pretty much had to see it to believe it. The Crystal Cathedral, that wasn't its original name, but that became its name. That's a story, too. The Strain of Megachurch Ministry and the Person of Robert H. Schuler. again, it's a story that comes together that is so incredible, you couldn't possibly make it up. You see truth as stranger than fiction. Now, just to tell the story organizationally, uh, things got rocky, uh, especially, uh, say, between uh, 2003, 2015, and, and uh, in, in that period. And uh, the last time I, I was there, uh, I think was uh, about 2003, it was right after the Welcome Center designed by Richard Meyer uh, had been uh, opened, and uh, I was shown around there. And again, this came out of... Uh, a conflict. It didn't. It didn't come out of anything harmonious. I had been uh, on Larry King Live uh, with Robert Schuler more than once, and we we squared off basically against one another. And uh, uh, and then I had spoken at a conference in Southern California in which I was just extremely critical uh, of, uh, of of Robert Schuler's theology. And uh, just just to make this make sense, I was uh, uh, one of forty young leaders in America back when I was young. Uh, profiled in a Time Magazine cover story. And that's the kind of thing that caught his attention. And so the next thing I know, uh, I got a phone call from Robert Schuler and started getting letters from Robert Schuler, And uh, it was a charm offensive. And uh, But I, I have to admit, I was curious enough that uh, when I was uh, in Southern California, actually at an, the, 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 the same kind of event, uh, in, in which we would have been uh, theologically uh, 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 very much in conflict. Nonetheless, he wants to show me around. And, uh, you know, I have to say, uh, it was incredibly impressive. Now, I mean, theologically, I was appalled, and even—and uh, and I love architecture. So, I mean, Philip Johnson, 
uh, you know, Richard Neutra, uh, Richard Byer. I mean, th- this is, it's like an architectural fantasy land. But that's exactly what it felt like, as a matter of fact. It, it didn't feel like a church at all. And, and um, in your book, by the way, you, you, you demonstrate how you say he wanted to be called a pastor rather than evangelist, but he really, when pressed, tried to argue that his church wasn't a church but a mission, because then it wasn't theologically accountable as a church. Um, I, I got the impression, as in my engagements with him, that he was kind of making it up as he went along. In other words, if, he, if he's talking to Christianity Today interrogators, he uh, affirms Chalcedonian and Nicene orthodoxy. But if he's talking to Larry King, I mean, he affirmed universalism rather than historic Christian understandings of the gospel, I mean, repeatedly. But then he would turn around with, a, with someone else, uh, like with me, and insist how much he believed in uh, heaven and hell and uh, a traditional Reformation understanding of the gospel. Uh, I'll admit, I'm still perplexed. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's an earnestness that he just, he, he really wanted to be all things to all people in some ways. And so he could be a bit of a, a chameleon uh, uh, in, in that effort. Uh, we also have, you know, he really want just like he wanted you to like him. He really wanted Ken uh, Woodward, the editor, yeah. uh, the new religion editor of Newsweek, uh, to like him as well. And those two went toe to toe quite a bit. Um, and so in the book, we we also have instances where he's having a, a conversation with uh, Lou Smeads, uh, a now past um, uh, Reformed theologian who taught at Fuller Seminary for a long time, and actually taught at Kelvin, where I'm at uh, for a while as well. And there's actually a moment where um, Schuller, they're having a conversation about sin. And, um, and Lou Smeads tells uh, Schuler, I think you've got it wrong. It's not that, um, it's not that uh, we don't have enough pride or we don't have enough self-esteem. Uh, Augustine would say we have too much, and that's, that's sin. And uh, um, Schuler has the audacity to say, well, I think Augustine's wrong on that. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that is the most uh, underlined emphatically sentence in your entire book in my copy. Um, <laughs> uh, as a, as an Augustinian theologian, just for someone just to say Augustine was wrong, and uh, you know, uh, you guys cite the uh, the Christianity Today piece that was done um, about nineteen eighty four, August I think of nineteen eighty four, and uh, it had taken place because Kenneth Concer, David Wells, and Gilbert Beers. Uh, had gone out to to meet with and interview Robert Schuller, and a concert and a co-author actually wrote an article kind of summarizing it. But uh, it's really interesting. They, they pressed him on a lot of these questions, and uh, you you cite this in your book, but the uh, the actual uh, Kenneth concert David Wells, Gilbert Beer uh, interview is actually quite extensive. And uh, he basically says contradictory things in one conversation, but it's clear he doesn't like Paul. So even even as he doesn't like Augustine, he really doesn't like Paul either. Well, I know that Schuller saw himself as a brilliant theologian. Uh, as a sociologist, I, I see him more as a brilliant organizational theorist. Yeah, he really thought through how do I create an organization that will incorporate as many people as possible, staff it in such a way that I can appeal to a diversity of interests and also be able to find an engine by which charisma could be characterized by excellence in the bureaucratic procedures carried through all the way down to the most lowly volunteer so that even the usher Um, at the greatest extent of the building, is manifesting the same quality that he wants to see um, uh, characterized out of the whole church, um, uh, the same sort of ethos or ambiance that comes from the pulpit, from his own mouth. And so there's that aspect to it, and then combine that with this organizational management of making sure that you can get that revenue um, in a constant and growing uh, level so that you can continue to feed the machine and expand it. And when he added the hour of power ministry, what most people don't know is how much of the revenue of the Crystal Cathedral really came just from that single yeah. source. And he himself admitted that the hour of power would likely not survive without himself, that he was the personality that would carry that show. 
And so his hope was that he would be able, be able to build the strength of the church and have the church live on well past his lifetime at the same time that the hour of power would dwindle. But you know, in every year that we can see, the dependence on the revenue of the hour of power never never were, uh, was reduced. And so with the overextension and the continuing to add more and the borrowing of more, uh, you could never really get away from the revenue of the hour of power in order to just have a church, regardless of who would be the pastor. Um, so even though he never solved that problem, it is remarkable that he was able to build a 50-year ministry with such strength and persuade so many people of being able to manage things in this way uh, that it really became the default of what clergy see as uh, church management today. I think that no one would disagree that today pastors see themselves as managers of their churches, not necessarily uh, doctrinal protectors who uh, advocate things simply from the pulpit. Uh, instead, we all have to be a part of managing uh, our congregations, we all need to pay attention to where the revenue is going to come from, and we all need to make sure that the mixture of the constituency of the church, the charisma that's coming from uh, the pastor uh, and the ministry, as well as the capital resources, are all operating in sync with each other. You know, that makes a lot of sense, I have to say, as one who is now a seminary president, been almost for three decades, of a confessional theological seminary, I just want to be clear, my, uh, my, my life investment is to turn out pastors who are not mere managers, but rather are, uh, are theologians and see that their primary, uh, their primary commitment is theological and, uh, and pastoral. But uh, as president of a large theological institution, uh, I've I got to pay the bills. And uh, the local church has to pay the bills. So yes, so in other words, they, they have to be adept at uh, certain managerial skills as well, especially in an increasingly complex economy and culture. The, the problem is getting all that in sync. And uh, so if, if you have, uh, uh, so I mean, you could just draw a, a line there. It's just a matter of miles between uh, Garden Grove Community Church uh, and uh, say, uh, uh, Grace Community Church, uh, pastored by John MacArthur in Sun Valley, up uh, in the uh, in the valley itself, and uh, their messages could not be more different. With John MacArthur representing very much a, a, a very, very uh, biblical uh, expository, theologically clear. Indeed, you could argue over the years, ever more clear in in confessional identity, um, and, and still going, by the way, and. Uh, and so you got two community churches, uh, Grace Community Church in the north, uh, Garden Grove Community Church in the south. But uh, but both of them have to be managerial to a certain extent. Otherwise, you can't—I mean, you've got big properties, you've got big budgets, you've got insurance policies, you've got liabilities. But the issue for me is what defines the ministry? What do people think of? And, and what you just said is exactly what uh, I see as uh, the most severe indictment of Robert Schuller, and that is that as a supposedly Christian pastor, the one thing everybody admires about him is his managerial skill, which is so ironic because at the end of the day, that is what failed him. Um, and, and that's a warning to us all. I don't mean that with, uh, with some kind of uh, uh, hubris. I, I, I mean that because uh, I, I mean, it's a, warning, it's a warning to us all. And uh, you, you invoke several terms that I think are very helpful. And uh, so uh, in the business culture, the idea of organizational strain has been there for a long time, but but you translate this into what you call megachurch strain, and the the interest of your book amongst many pastors, and I've shared it with many, uh, is not just that it's about Robert Schuller and the Crystal Cathedral, but it really is about what you argue is a pattern of megachurch strain. Sure, we landed on uh, what we call the three C's, um, the three legs that are supporting uh, all churches, but um, mega churches in particular, and that's capital, uh, constituency, and charisma. And that as long as those three things, so that the capital that you have, you have funds coming in, and Schuler was a master at proposing major projects that took a lot of cash and that were really exciting. And he, he said, don't bother with bake sales. Um, don't waste your time. Don't ask people to fix the furnace. They don't care about that. If you need the furnace fixed, tell them you need a new glass building and then use that money to fix the furnace and build your glass building. Um, and so you need to have that constant influx of capital. Uh, but you also have to have the right constituency. You have to have 
the people in place that who are going to come fill your pews, fill the offering plates, um, and that are going to be attracted to what you happen to be doing on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday evenings. And then you have to have the charisma. You have to have the right person in place who is going to give attenders confidence that this, this person is somebody I want to follow, that there's somebody who, are, who uh, has a dynamism, um, who um, is theologically astute, that, that they're onto something. And as long as those things are in balance, it works. One of our arguments is we, you know, the Glass Church is both what locals call it. Gerardo grew up calling the Crystal Cathedral the Glass Church, kind of pejoratively. You want to call it a cathedral. It's not. You want to call it crystal. It's not. It's a glass church. But there's also a fragility in glass. It has some strength to a certain point, but once, once it's overwhelmed, it doesn't just crack a little bit. It shatters. It, 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 it's, it's ruined. And uh, our argument is that uh, especially for mega churches, because they tend to be top heavy and overloaded. They're actually there's there's strains and there's fragility that in good times it's all quite masked, but it doesn't take much. An economic crisis, um, a pastor who makes some poor decisions, um, changing demographics. If any one of those things goes out of balance, the the entire structure might wobble and, and crash, and, and sometimes catastrophically. Gerardo, you make the point uh, in the book that uh, growth is, uh, is a key factor here. So uh, the, they grow until they don't. But when the Crystal Cathedral stopped growing, it actually, I would argue, uh, started collapsing. Is, is that fair to say? Very fair to say. In fact, um, Schuler would completely agree with you um, because he felt like many other church growth theorists, quote unquote, would say that if the church is not growing, it's dying. The difficulty is trying to achieve clarity about what that means. And as a sociologist, and I've studied many churches and have done a lot of analyses on these things, I'm looking for frameworks that will help me make sense of what's really going on. Once Mark and I landed on this notion that every church has to balance uh, constituency, charisma, and capital, um, that very much helped me to understand how is it that churches are trying to manage the resources of their ministries in order to achieve the goals that they have? And there are often incompatibilities between the goals that they have and the resources that they possess. How they fill those um, is, is something that is part of the magic, if you will, of leadership. Um, but what we don't often see and what I think Schuler underestimated is you can stretch the capacities of your church internally but you may be doing so at the risk of any external shocks that may happen, things that you cannot predict that may hurt your church, even though you right. have done everything you could within your church. So as we, for example, face the COVID-19 pandemic, that's an example of an external shock, which no church leader could have ever anticipated. And yet the consequences of that are only going to exaggerate the difference between the resources you have and um, the, the desires of what you want to achieve in addition to the commitments that you've already made. And so Schuler already produced incredible strain just internally to the congregation out of the things yeah. that he wanted to accomplish in his ministry. Once the strains externally were imposed in addition, that's what created the vicious spiraling that no one was able to control. I uh, grew up in South Florida in my high school years, and uh, that's where I, I was actually a member of a Baptist megachurch, at least uh, by, by those contemporary definitions. Uh, moved there in 1972. I was 12, 13 years old, never seen anything like it. Church had a bowling alley and a gymnasium. And uh, Vibrant youth group, and by the way, it was just a phenomenally healthy place for me to be as a teenager and for, and for our family, so I'm very thankful for that. Then I came into the influence also of uh, other pastors in the area, uh, and uh, I mentioned uh, Jim Kennedy in particular at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and uh, and much like Schuler in, in the visuals, and I, I, they're, they're, they're just absolute contradictions theologically, except for one thing, which I'm going to get to. But, uh, but theologically, they would have been completely opposed. With Jim Kennedy, a confessional Presbyterian, uh, Schuler doing his best to get away as far from that tradition as possible. 
at least in perception and in preaching. But the visuals are very important. So Jim Kennedy, who was incredibly strategic, uh, as well as entrepreneurial in his own way, you know, he starts to he goes down to a church as tens, he builds it up into multiple thousands, builds this incredibly theatrical building. I believe Richard Wagner, Philadelphia, uh, uh, designed it again. Very famous architect. Uh, with a 30-story, more than 350-foot tower visible from almost everywhere in in the county, uh, by far the highest structure in the county. And uh, so I, I, all this, and Billy Graham, uh, much like Norman Vincent Peale preached at uh, the, the inaugural service of the Crystal Cathedral, Billy Graham preached the dedication at Coral Ridge. And so you look at all this and I say, okay, I saw that. And, uh, and there's a real Presbyterian church, a Corridge Presbyterian church right now, but it's been through cycles of strain, and I'm very thankful for the health that, that I see there now. But it, it's not the same as it was in the 1970s and 80s with Jim Kennedy, national television. By the way, you also make that point, and I've seen that with the ministry of people like Charles Stanley in Atlanta, um, with uh, the fact that so many people watch on television, and that means you don't know who you have on Sunday morning. And so people would watch Jim Kennedy— and, the, and then they would come to South Florida on vacation, and they would show up to see him preach. But if you walked in there and thought you were seeing the church, you, you weren't. And the same thing is the point you make about the Crystal Cathedral. The people watched the Hour of Power. They, uh, they came as tourists. Uh, you know, they made a pilgrimage, so to speak, not to Canterbury, but to, uh, to Garden Grove. And, uh, but but they, they just—that's not a part of the financial uh, foundation of the church— you also really document—by the way, if there's one thing I wish had been in your book that you did not have in your book, and how's this for a managerial point? I need charts and graphs. Because one of the things I thought of, and you got to it, was the aging of that congregation, because I have seen that uh, as a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention and elsewhere. And uh, and that's one of the things that has been—megachurch pastors, and they're together, they know this is a constant, the average age of attenders. Now, by the time you get to Schuler and the end of his ministry, the average age in the congregation is creeping hauntingly towards his own. How does that factor in? Yeah, so that, that, that becomes a, a significant issue um, that uh, the, the current congregation continues to wrestle with. Uh, I think we have a postscript in the book that you know, uh, Schuler's grandson, Bobby, continues to uh, minister to the congregation that's now known as uh, Irvine Presbyterian Church. Um, but even under and Bobby's in his maybe late thirties, um, they continue to try to figure out how to draw in uh, a younger audience. Cause if you go to, if you watch hour of power, which you still can on YouTube every, every weekend, um, if you look at the, the congregation, it is, it is still, um, quite a bit older. Uh, even that, even Bobby's, um, younger, uh, presentation yeah. and, uh, he's a good preacher uh, and people love him, but um, he's, they still draw older. And, um, and so there's a lot, uh, I think uh, millennials and Gen Xers who um, saw, especially Robert Schuler in his, in the last years um, just didn't resonate yeah. with them anymore. You know, they were more interested in what one of um, Schuler's disciples was doing down the road, Rick Warren at Saddleback. Right. So Rick Warren had been through the Leadership Institute with Schuler, and he took, you know, I, I like to think of it this way. Um, Robert Schuler kind of had built a department store trying to draw in everybody. I'm going to try to have, have something for everyone. Uh, Rick Warren's genius was, well, people don't shop like that anymore. Everybody wants um, a boutique or a craft something. And so rather than one big service that everybody can kind of like, I'm going to have 11 different venues and really – develop a loyalty to a certain type of worship at, at Saddleback. And, and, and Warren would say, and that's okay because that's not really church, but you know, that, that's just getting people in the door. You know, church actually happens in the small groups that are spread all over, you know, the more than 1000 small groups that are spread all over Orange County and, and where, where, where people are actually getting together in an intimate venue. That's church. Well, one of the things that's interesting about age is, when a church uh, grows over time, does the congregation remain the same age or does it get older? And I think that the fact that the ministry had an older profile really betrays that the message of the cathedral and the ministry of the cathedral appealed per, to a particular kind of culture. And that culture 
clearly was shrinking in Orange County, even as the campus of the Cathedral continued to expand. And as a contrast, we can look at Mosaic in Los Angeles, which is a Southern Baptist church led by Erwin McManus. And that ministry uh, for 20, 30 years has actually kept the same age profile, still an average age that's around 27, 28, or 29 years old. And that is a remarkable um, phenomenon when you can see a ministry that can continue to appeal to a changing culture over time and still be able to have relevance to those people. And so Schuler had a message that he deemed to be universal and one that would touch everyone and that spoke to the inherent psychology of all people. But in actuality, uh, his church presumed that you had yeah. a certain kind of Midwestern and Southern sensibility, uh, that you were already churched and understand what church means, and that you're already pre, um, pre-inclined to say, I make a commitment to a church, and that includes making a healthy financial commitment to that church as well. Uh, you guys probably know the name Lyle Schaller. Uh, came, came across it in your work, uh, a, a church management expert, uh, kind of to mainline Protestantism, especially in the last part of the 20th century. And I heard Schaller say one time that uh, that a lot of churches end up being retirement homes, and other churches end up being permanent youth groups. And uh, the goal was <laughs> to be somewhere between those two. And uh, I, I, yeah. when you mentioned yeah. McManus and, and Mosaic and, and Robert Schuller and the Crystal Cathedral, th- those seem to be kind of t- two different bookends of uh, Schaller's point here. Uh, and the difficulty is, uh, I mean, if, so we talk about aging here. Let me just stipulate right up front. Let's just uh, posit that uh, uh, Protestantism in the United States is older uh, than it was 50 years ago. And uh, mainline Protestantism, older in the mean or the median, uh, than uh, evangelical Protestantism, but evangelicalism is still older by median age than it was uh, 20 years ago. Uh, we, we are looking at an increasingly secularized youth culture, and uh, the difficulty of uh, of not only attracting millennials and Generation Z or whatever we're going to land on calling them, uh, but of uh, of getting them deeply involved in the life of a local church. It's not impossible. I mean, there are so many churches that are doing it well, and it's not impossible. Uh, we've got record enrollment uh, as a very confessional seminary, uh, but the larger culture is, uh, is the religious culture is getting older. And uh, I, I've been looking at trends, particularly in a project of my own uh, in the United Kingdom. And uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s, you could see that strain uh, in, in, the, uh, in the, the British churches, and you can see it here now, just kind of like a delayed fuse. So let me ask you both. What's the parable of Robert Schuller and the Crystal Cathedral? What's uh, what's the uh, the one line you would offer as the as the the lesson of your book? So I'm just struck by how quickly Schuller has been forgotten. We discuss in the in the book the fact that uh, I was starting all my semesters with with, with students going to a Dutch Reformed uh, college and now it's a university um, and ask them just as just as a way to get to know them a little bit. Who's who here has heard of uh, Robert Schuller. I would get almost no hands. I would, then I would mention Hour of Power. And, um, you know, I get a few timid hands wanting to help me out saying they thought they knew that maybe when they're homesick from church or their grandma had watched, watched something like that. But it just strikes me how someone as monumental to 20th century Christianity in the United States, someone who was on TV every Sunday morning for 40 years, um, is credited by some as uh, helping um, the fall of communism in the Soviet Union because of his friendship with Mikhail Gorbachev. How um, less than a you know less than a decade um, after he uh, leaves ministry, uh, he's already uh, kind of outside of the public consciousness for for a lot of people, and just um, how fleeting um, some religious movements can be, which, which seem monumental at the time. And I often tell my, my students that religious change tends to be glacial. Um, but in some ways, uh, the story of the, the Crystal Cathedral and um, its vulnerability shows you that there are moments where there are radical changes 
that you don't even realize are happening uh, as the ground shifts beneath our feet. Our book is certainly a caution to church leaders today. Schuler had immense confidence that he had figured out church. He had figured out how to lead it. He had figured out the gospel for today, and he had figured out how to secure a strong future for Christianity, not just in America, but the whole world. And unfortunately, I think that there are many things that Schuler didn't understand and didn't even bother trying to discern. And so I think if there is an ultimate um, virtue that we really want to promote through this book, it's the virtue of humility. And that pastors, in their ambition and in their convictions, that they still remember that the world continues to change, that they do not have a hundred percent ability to see everything that impacts them in their ministry, and that they would always benefit from a little more reflection, a little bit more uh, careful assessment, a little bit more of listening to unfamiliar voices in order to try to really grasp what is the larger activity of the spirit in the world today. I really did enjoy that conversation with professors Mulder and Marty. They wrote a very interesting book, and people who read the book are likely to read it in different ways. Some are probably going to read it simply because of their interest in Robert H. Schuler. As we discussed, that's probably a dwindling number, simply as a matter of the actuarial tables. People are getting older. A lot of the people who were deeply involved in and interested in the ministry of Robert Schuler aren't even with us anymore. I think there'll be some people who will read the book because of the idea of megachurch strain. With the megachurch such a major phenomenon across the religious world, especially the Christian world, we are trying to figure out what does that mean? What is the shape of the church for the future? What does a megachurch look like in the future? There are some incredible lessons to be learned by the Crystal Cathedral. But on the other hand, I'm a theologian. The bigger story here to me is theology or the lack of theology, the transformation of what had been a theological message into primarily a psychotherapeutic message, the abandonment of the gospel in any clear sense, the repudiation of the classic Christian understanding of sin. That means, of course, the reformulation of the gospel and all the rest. It becomes, when it comes to Robert H. Schuler, a parable of what I would call a different kind of liberalism. It's not the hard liberalism of a Harry Emerson Fosdick or someone who just outright denies the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. It's a softer liberalism that is simply not theological, that avoids any kind of theological rough spots, theological hard edges, any kind of definition. It's really clear that Robert Schuller was embarrassed by and felt restricted by the confessional Reformation theology of the Reformed Church in America. But he also wanted the credentials. He wanted the respectability that came with being an ordained minister of the oldest religious denomination, Christian denomination, in the United States. He wanted that. He wanted both worlds. And as I discovered in my own small way, he wanted the respect of everyone across the theological spectrum. And of course, that's impossible if you take theology seriously. I can well remember as a young theologian being given a copy of Robert Schuller's 1982 book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. I can remember reading it and wondering how this could in any sense be the product of someone who was actually a Christian minister, not to mention a Christian theologian or someone writing a theological work. It wasn't theological, and that was the point. But you didn't have to read between the lines to see in the book a repudiation of Augustinian, Pauline, New Testament theology— Reformation theology is seen in the historic creeds and confessions of Reformation Christianity. The gospel, as preached in almost every megachurch of my knowledge when I was a young man in the United States, the gospel I heard preached was a gospel about sin and Christ and salvation. It began with a biblical understanding of sin, but that's exactly what Robert Schuller was trying to deny and replace with something else. At various times in his ministry, he tried to argue that he wasn't as radical as he often appeared. He would say things like, well, some have said I've called for a new reformation. Well, some have not only said that, Robert Schuller said that in the subtitle of his book. 
To say that he was slippery is an understatement. He said in that conversation in the 1980s with theologians like Kenneth Conser and David Wells that he believed in hell. And he tried to make clear he believed in a traditional Christian understanding of hell, except that was incompatible with just about everything he said, everything he wrote, and everything he preached. In this book, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, he wrote these words, quote, Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Now, he had more to say, but it's basically the very same verse of the very same hymn that he wrote. Sin's a fundamental lack of self-esteem that inhibits the full development of the human personality. Schuller argued that it was a lack of self-esteem that separates the human creature from the holy God. But that's, of course, the opposite of what the Scripture tells us. In the very same paragraph, he writes, quote, And what is hell? It is the loss of pride that naturally follows separation from God, the ultimate and unfailing source of our soul's sense of self-respect. End quote. Later in the same paragraph, he writes, A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. Schuller asks, quote, Can you imagine any condition more tragic than to live life and eternity in shame? End quote. One of the parables I would underline when it comes to Robert Schuller is the fact that there are different ways to reject the Christian faith and its doctrinal and confessional substance. You can deny it with outright denial, or you could basically deny it with either silence on crucial issues, a lack of addressing these issues whatsoever from the pulpit. Professors Mulder and Marty make very clear that when it came to Robert Schuller's preaching, he explicitly did not want to preach on anything he defined as controversial. I would put it differently. I think there's good evidence that Robert Schuller never wanted to preach on anything that his audience would not want to hear. So was Robert H. Schuller a heretic? Technically speaking, in the history of the Christian church, a heretic is primarily one who obstinately rejects a doctrine central and essential to Christianity. The issue is that Robert Schuller never faced a church court on this issue, and responsibility for that would have fallen to the Reformed Church in America. Huge questions about that. But then again, most denominations face some very huge questions about a lack of theological accountability for the ministers in their midst. But judged on the impact of his ministry and the substance of his writings and preaching, what came out was heresy. Not the hard heresy of the theological liberal in Heidelberg, but rather the soft liberalism that came from a preacher preaching under a lot of glass in Garden Grove, California. My mother-in-law had it right when years ago, when Robert Schuller was on television, she described him as Schuller the jeweler. And what about all that glass, the 10,000 panes or so of glass in the Crystal Cathedral designed by one of the world's most famous architects, Philip Johnson, the great symbol of Robert Schuller's ministry? It's now a cathedral, still a cathedral, well, a cathedral in a whole new sense. It's now a Roman Catholic cathedral, the cathedral there in Orange County of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange. Ground zero of his new reformation of self-esteem is now a Roman Catholic cathedral in California. And Robert Schuller and his wife Aravella are buried there on the campus. A parable in one person. Everywhere you look and in every way you can conceive, that was Robert H. Schuller. Many thanks to my guests, Gerardo Marty and Mark Mulder, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed this episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than a hundred of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.